Let's pray again. Our God and our Savior, we are as sincere as we could possibly be as we pray, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Yet at the same time, we feel this great awareness of how dim our eyesight is, even blind in some respects to all that you are, blind to your glory. The eyes of our hearts have been dimmed by our sin. We've filled our souls with visions of this world. Not all of those inherently evil, but some of them are. And right now, Lord God, we we are in danger of missing a sight of your glory because the eyes of our hearts have been filled with Everything from money and wealth and materialism to the vile and vulgar and even pornographic images. All of these things are cheap substitutes at best and they are deadly and destructive at worst. God in heaven, have mercy upon us and enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may see you as you are. There's not one problem or difficulty that would not be remedied in seeing Jesus as he is. And we feel such a longing, even a desperation in our souls to see you. Singing as we have, we, we would trade all of this world's treasures just for a momentary glimpse of you and your glory. And yet at the same time, we we turn away from you and we look at things and we pursue things and we set our hearts on things that they're just going to burn up one day. And if truth be told, many of us are trading the eternal for the temporary God, have mercy. You have, you are having mercy at this moment, and you will because that's in your nature, how thankful we are. It's such a perfect match, Lord God, because we're we're miserable people. A good deal of it's our own doing, our own sinfulness and rebellion and hard-heartedness. But here we are in that misery, and there you are in your infinite mercy, and we say, come, rescue us, deliver us, bless us for your name's sake. Thank you for what you have done through your son, and as we read more of his gospel today, the good news of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, oh, let this be transformational. Please, Lord God, don't leave us as we are, but take us to your very heart today. Take us into your truth and change us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat rack in front of you, you'll find... This particular portion of scripture on page 848, 
Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. At the National Prayer Breakfast 10 days ago, Arthur Brooks, who I don't think is any relationship to me, although I've so appreciated things he's said and written that I think I would, I think I would be happy to claim him as a relative. But he spoke these words. In the words of the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. He went on to say, in politics today, we treat each other as worthless, which is why our fights are so bitter and cooperation feels nearly impossible. Then Arthur Brooks quoted a a very interesting study. The world's leading expert on marital reconciliation is Dr. John Gottman, a psychologist at the University of Washington. Over the course of his work, Dr. Gottman has studied thousands of married couples. After watching a couple interact for just one hour, he can predict with 94% accuracy whether the couple will divorce within three years. How can he tell? It's not from the anger the couples express. Anger doesn't predict separation or divorce. The biggest warning signs, he explains, are indicators of contempt. These include sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and worst of all, eye-rolling. These little acts effectively say you are worthless to the one person a spouse should love more than any other. In the course of that prayer breakfast address, Brooks goes on to point specifically to how widespread contempt is in our culture, but certainly in politics. Should not surprise us, Proverbs 18.3 says, when wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. You know, what's particularly interesting to me is that Jesus told a parable once, and he used the word contempt. That parable is found in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus tells this parable, and as Luke notes, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. That's a a public sign of of anxiety and, and repentance. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen to Jesus' words. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Where does that contempt flow from? It flows from self-righteousness, a sense that I'm better than the the people around me. I'm better than my spouse. I'm better than my political rival. I'm better than my neighbor. Sadly, in that very prayer breakfast, I think our president demonstrated he's a kind of Pharisee because he took that opportunity to publicly scold and belittle his political rivals. And I would say by his very testimony, 
claiming to be a religious man, Christian even, yet at the same time, he says he never felt a need to repent of his sins. He seems quite happy that he is not like other people, regularly boasting in his achievements and accomplishments and putting down others. It sounds a lot like the prayer of the Pharisee. I think we should pray for his salvation. I think we should pray for the salvation of our nation. He is not the only one. And I suspect there are some of us in this room today who, if we were honest, would say, I'm just as self-righteous in my Pharisaism. What's the gospel remedy for this kind of self-righteousness that actually treats others with contempt? Well, going back to last week's message, what is it that God desires us to render to him because Jesus was being tested by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes came to him, then some Sadducees, they're all putting him to the test, and and he passed those tests. There's nothing in him that they could find fault with, but as part of his answer to the Pharisees and scribes when they were trying to pose this really hard dilemma, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he simply said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. And I stated, and I'm fully persuaded that he's more interested in just making a point, you pay your taxes and you put something in the offering plate when it's passed, right? I think there's actually something really significant before us, and we're coming to it here this morning. And so I want you to look at verse 28 with me, because as we begin reading this portion of the scripture, there's a very important question uh, that that comes before us. Now, a little context here. Verse 28 says, one of the scribes came up and heard. In its context, it's likely part of the group that that had already come to him. Pharisees and scribes came to test him. Sadducees came. We don't know whether this individual was a member of the Sanhedrin or not, but he would be an authoritative teacher of God's law, an expert, like a lawyer is expert in law. This man is expert in God's law. And now he asks a very important question. Which commandment is the most important of all? There's a distinction that the religious leaders and scribes like this man would have made in those days between the lighter and weightier, that is the small or great commandments. And the scholars in Israel had categorized, cataloged all of the Old Testament laws and identified 613 That's a substantial number. And when he asked this question, and if you cast it in his context, it's as if he's saying to Jesus, you know the list. Out of the 613 commands and ordinances and statutes and such, which would you say is the most important? And that's a really important question for us. It's founded on the assumption that God's commands are, in fact, authoritative in our lives. That's a question for us to wrestle with. Do I view God's word as being authoritative? Do I view his commands as having any weight in my life? The second assumption that I think the scribe is bringing into this conversation is that we can actually be sure that we have the very words of God. And some of you aren't persuaded. And going back to tying last week, you, you might be a little like the Sadducees. They believe, remember, the first five books of the Old Testament, that's what they limited their authoritative word of God to. But the rest of it was ignored, suspect, if not outright rejected. 
So the scribe is coming, though, and it's clear that he assumes he and Jesus are in agreement that God's commands are, in effect, authoritative, and secondly, that they can actually be sure they have the very commands of God. Well, let's keep reading, because in verse 29, uh, Jesus gives an answer, and it really is the most important command that he identifies, but there are two parts to this. In verse 29, Jesus answered, and he's about to quote Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is a unity. And we sometimes use the word tri-unity to explain even more of his character, but He's the only one in all the universe. Look at verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God. Notice the the repetition of the words all that are about to unfold. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, that's the clear command, right? But let's ask a, a very important question. What does it mean to love God in that way? One author writes that for Jesus, the whole law is summarized in the will of God, which calls for the love, which is a wholehearted response to God. Another commentator writes, it is the Lord our God who is to be loved with a completeness of devotion, which is defined even in this passage by the repetition of that word, all. Four times it appears, all, 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 all. Friday was Valentine's. Do you remember your first Valentine? You grew up in the 70s as I did. You would probably recall some of these. Your mom had to go get a box of these, right? And sadly, because I am like descended from procrastinators, that was usually like the night before, kind of in panic mode. We are throwing together some kind of little goofy you know, shoebox wrapped in aluminum foil and then you try to glue or tape red hearts on there and cut out a little slot because at school there's going to be this great valentine exchange. And you you dumped all those valentines out on the table and you kind of ranked them. These are the really cool ones and that's just weird. I don't even know what that means. And then you think through all the people in your class and and you know, the people you're closest to, of course, you're going to give the choice Valentines to. And I always struggle too, because, you know, there's that kid you don't know well, or it's just kind of like different from you. And you don't want to make a really clear commentary on how you feel about him or her by giving them the like bottom of the barrel Valentine. There's a lot of angst with Valentines in <laughs> elementary school. The first Valentine I remember was fifth grade. A little redhead girl named Diane Miller. Have I told you about Diane? <laughs> Got some things to talk about, don't we? Yeah. Well, I barely spoke to Diane. I mean, you just didn't do that face-to-face, but you had your friends who operated kind of like the, you know, it's an older version of social media. You'd write out little notes, and you'd say, hey, can you give this to her? And she had her friends and writing out notes, and some of you remember, like, do you like me? Check yes, check no. I mean, it was just the most inane thing. 
Um, but out of the 24 Valentine's cards I signed to my classmates, you know, that was the year that I tried to give extra thought and effort to choosing the best of the bunch for Diane. And I got to tell you that, you know, my thoughts about her, I mean, just filled my mind and heart and determined to go back and grab part of the quotation from one of those commentators I just quoted. It, it even determined my disposition and shaped my personality for the better part of, what, three, four weeks, maybe? Because <laughs> that's about how long a fifth grade Valentine romance is going to last. <laughs> the completeness of devotion that God desires from us, though, is not something that you just artificially manufacture and work up in a sense of like, well, this is the command, therefore I must do it. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love God. I've got to love God. Love God. Love God with all that I am, all that I am. It's, it's not something that you can just gin up of your own strength. God wants all of you, and that wholehearted love, though, is a response to him. And that's why when you read this text and you feel the weight of that command, you, you should begin to feel a, a little sobering frustration creep over your soul. It's like, how, how can I do that? Because he's not, as you see, if you just take time to meditate on this, he's, he's not simply asking you to love him with a part of your heart, but he's asking you to love him from your heart and with all. I got to tell you, I was really wrestling with this last night a little bit and just feeling like, Lord, what, what am I missing here? How do I love God in this way? And, and this is the simple answer that I'm confident God gave. He says, know me. Why did I give up on the redheaded Miller girl in fifth grade. Because after a time, there just wasn't anything substantial between us. Why did I commit to marry Kristen almost 29 years ago? Because I discovered things about her that I said, this is the one. See, I want to make sure that you understand the the power to fulfill this command doesn't come from within you where you say, you know what, if God commanded it, I'm going to do it. Sometimes that's appropriate, but, but there's more to this command than just saying, I'm going to love God with all, with all that I am. You have to know him. It's part of the reason that we open this word together when we gather on Sunday mornings. It's part of the reason we continue to encourage you to be in the word personally, day by day. You can't love somebody that you don't know. And when you begin to explore the depths of who this God is, you can't help but be in awe of him. You can't help but be in love with him. You say, what do you mean? 
as you begin to make your way through the scripture, there are names and attributes and characteristics of God that begin to unfold. And you begin to read from the very outset that he is Elohim, that is the God of glory. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty who even overpowers all creation. He is called God Most High who rules the universe, God Everlasting who has no beginning or ending. He is the God of unparalleled majesty. He's the God who sees everything. He is called Yahweh, that is the self-existent eternal God, the God who is absolutely faithful to himself, to his word, to his promises, and to his people. He is revealed to us in the Old Testament as God my banner, God my healer, God my shepherd, God my provider, God my peace. His title, Adonai, speaks of his sovereign mastery of all. And then there are the personal names like Father, who forms and saves and keeps and protects and provides and adopts and blesses his children. Abba, the one who hears our cries. He's revealed to us as Jesus because his name means he saves us from our sins. He is God's anointed one as Messiah. He is the Holy Spirit who is our comforter. He's described to us as light and love and spirit. He's our rock and fortress, our refuge, our high tower of strength. And if you knew him as he is, you would be compelled to love him. And as he came in the flesh, as we've been studying through the gospel of Mark for these many months, we, be, we find that we are beholding not just a kind of glory, but the glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the master. He's the teacher. He's the shepherd of his flock and the door to the sheepfold. He's the healer of every disease and the cleanser of every kind of defilement. He's the forgiver of our sins, the true vine, the true temple, the light of the world. He's the word made flesh, the prophet who is greater than Moses. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the holy one of God, the prince of peace, and the resurrection and the life. If you knew him as he is, you would love him. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the faithful high priest, and the one and only son of God. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He is the one who's, who is called faithful and true, the Word of God, and He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you knew Him as He is, you would love Him. The attributes, the names, the titles, the work that is described in this very word is all designed not just to give you head knowledge about Jesus, but to actually beckon you, entice you, as it were, into relationship with him, where you say in comparison to all other loves that this world might offer to me, they fade in comparison to him, and he stands in brilliant glory above all others. This is the God who can claim 
absolute independence who reveals himself as the unchangeable, infinite, eternal God, omnipotent and omnipresent. He's high and holy. He's good and gracious. He's just and true, merciful and forgiving, loving and loyal, jealous and long-suffering, steadfast and sympathetic. He's described in this word as the king of glory, the king of righteousness, the king of the ages, the king of heaven, and as I already noted, the king of kings. There is no one else like this God. And all of that he brings to bear on this command. And when you begin to set your heart on all that he is, a command to love this kind of spectacular, unimaginable, glorious God suddenly doesn't seem to be a burden. It's the highest privilege we could be called into. You mean... Lord God, I am called to love you, you and all of that spectacular glory. And he says, yes, and I want all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's why when we sing, I trade my treasures, all my rewards, just to know you. Is that really sacrifice? I mean, if you emptied your bank account today, liquidated all your assets and and could truly trade it just for five minutes in the glory of God. Would you really be a fool? I say no. And this book from Genesis to Revelation tells the story of people who got that. And they counted their possessions and their lives as less than dear just to know God, do you see why I would say this command can't be something that you just kind of write down and say, well, add that to the list of things to do tomorrow. I'm going to get up, I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to get breakfast and have my coffee, go off to work, and I'm going to love God. As if you put this on your task list. Now, tomorrow morning when we wake up, it's going to be a fight to get your head and your heart back to this Truth, where you kind of create your own word salad. That's one of the terms I use to describe what's on the screen in front of you. But more than that, it's got to be a, a truth salad that's so dominating that the, the challenge will be not that God ceases to be all of that, but that your, your mind and heart, just like my mind and heart, are going to want to import all the other stuff that feels really urgent, important, critical, and, and vital tomorrow. Every day is a battle to keep your heart loving what is most important. Let's think about the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, because we were there last week. They're they're all in cahoots. They're trying to bring Jesus down. And so the Pharisees came and tested him on that thing of taxes, because there's There's spiritual commitments layered in there. And the question that we would put before them is, do you really love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Do you love him exclusively? Do you love him in the way that he is is calling you to out of all of his perfections and the glory of his character? And the truth is that they don't love him in that way because at the end of the day, they, they love God's word, but they also love their traditions, religious traditions. And they love the recognition that comes with it. So they have a divided heart. 
Oh, they would say, yes, we love God. That's why we're so serious about obedience to his law and knowing it as it is. The problem is they've elevated even God's law to status equal with him. How about the Herodians? So they would tell you that they love God. The problem is their politics and their alliance with Herod is so important to them that they're not willing to give that up. They're not going to trade that treasure just to know and love God. How about the Sadducees? They're, they're so in love with their rationalism and education that although they would say they have love for God, it's also divided. And that's where I begin to think, what, what's dividing my heart? What divides your heart from loving God as he deserves? You know, if there's any other rival, you need to forsake it. You'd think it really odd if I brought little red-headed Diana Miller back into the picture, said, Kristen, you know, we've, we've got a guest room. You mind if we bring her in? And you say, it's odd. She's just going to stay for a few days? No, she's going to stay permanently. You know, we had something going back in fifth grade. A lot of good times. <laughs> Those three to four weeks we had together, right around Valentine's, Wow. I just don't want to let it go. Oh, I love Kristen. I want to keep a little space there for the redhead. You're laughing, as you should. And some of, yeah, nervous is the other description. And some of you are like, that's just weird. But that's what we do with God. Sometimes we even reverse it. We give God the little guest room. I'm going to make space for him three or four weeks out of the year. The other 48 or 49, that's, that's mine. It's my time. It's easy to see it in the Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, isn't it? It's a lot harder to see it in yourself. God says, I want all of you. There's a second part to the answer, and it's interesting to me that even while we're trying to evaluate what, what competes with God in my soul, Jesus brings in a second part of this. And, and you almost have a sense that it's one command he's talking about. And I think we're can we we're coming really close to that because part two is also a, a way to diagnose, do you really love God? See, Jesus goes straight into this. It, it's not even like the scribe says, Hey, do you have a second command that's in mind? No, he asked one question. What's the most important one? And then Jesus is the one who goes straight in verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now here he's actually quoting Leviticus 19.18. So he's quoted Deuteronomy. Now he quotes Leviticus. And, and this is where we pause and ask the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you can find all kinds of definitions and explanations, and, and many of them are really helpful. Here's one that I found that I, I'll just share with you. A wholehearted love for God necessarily finds its expression in a selfless concern for another man which decides and acts in a manner consistent with itself. Jesus is not going to allow us to separate love for God from love for other people. And this is part of what makes Christ's teaching so revolutionary. It's what makes the gospel so mind-blowing. He is combining love for God and love for others into an inseparable practice. And the apostles got this after the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
For instance, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or what he wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. He's been talking about the freedom from sin and the freedom from all of those rituals, religious practices that we sometimes engage in, hoping that God will be uh, appeased and, and that he won't be angry with us, that he'll like us enough. So he's not only talking about freedom from all of those external rituals, but then he goes on to say, you're called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another and the apostle john writes it in his first letter at the end of the new testament if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god whom he has not seen Jesus doesn't allow us to say, well, you know, my relationship with God's a very personal thing, and I love him with all that I am, but you know what? I'm not having anything to do with that dude over there or that group, or those people really drive me nuts, and I just hate them. No, he's, he's actually saying, you actually are commanded by God to love others as you love yourself. It, it doesn't mean that we ignore God's truth or even ignore the sin that exists in other people, but it does mean we are not free to be selective in who we will love. Go back to the Pharisee, stood in the temple praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. He doesn't know God. Herodians, so committed politically that whatever promoted the cause of Herod, that's what they're committed to, and anybody who stood in the way of Herod and his policies and, and whatever political uh, whatever political advantage that brought to them, or they're like not associated with you. Sadducees, they're not hanging out with people that they deem to be ignorant and superstitious because they believe that there's actually a life after this life, a resurrection. How crazy is that? How ignorant. But because they don't love God, they don't actually have love for others. Well, the scribe hears this, and he, he's actually really intrigued, if not excited. And so he says, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. So this is a most important truth. It's foundational to what Jesus is saying. It's foundational to what all of us should affirm. There's no other besides this God. Deuteronomy 4.35 to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Or the prophecies of Isaiah, 2,800 years old at this point, about 800 years old in Christ's day. God himself is recorded by Isaiah saying, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? That is, who could predict the future like I can? Who declared it of old? 
Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. And then listen to this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. See, before he even commands you to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, he's actually at work calling you to enter into relationship with him. He knows that there is no other God or being or entity in the universe who has the power to rescue you and deliver you and save you. He calls you through the words of Isaiah, even today, I am God, there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. The scribe goes on in verse 33, or or Jesus goes on in verse 33, Seeing that he answered wisely, he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. The scribe is seeing some things, but why did Jesus say this? That's a little alarming, honestly. Not far? Well, any good scribe wanted to enter the kingdom. So Jesus is clearly implying you're not there yet. Well, where is he? Is he just outside the gate, so to speak? I mean, what, what's really happening? So he's, he's got it that, that sacrifice is not as important as the love for God, but it seems like Jesus just drew another blank there, as if the scribe needs to go further than recognizing love for God is the most important command. And he would be absolutely right. I ask, what's missing? The answer is, The gospel. Do you know Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14 tell us that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse? For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's what the scribe hasn't quite grasped at this point. He, like so many in his day, is thinking that if I'm expert in God's word, if I know it, memorize it, try to live by it, God's going to make a place for me in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you're not far, but you're still not there. Because the righteous ones, those who enter the kingdom, do so by faith. Paul goes on to write, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And that's the point where I pause and I say, so I'm commanded to do them, but I I can't actually do it perfectly. That's the point. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's exactly what Jesus will do just a couple of days beyond this conversation with the scribe. He's come to Jerusalem to die, a substitutionary death, not just a a model of self-sacrifice, some kind of moral virtue that's inculcated into this death. No, an actual sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or as Paul writes here, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, read on with me, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Law keeping? Our obedience? Through our love for God? No, it's through faith. If we could be saved by our obedience, then what need would there be for Christ to die on the cross and become a curse for us? 
So make sure you get the right order here. Yes, it's a command to love God, but you don't love God in order to make him happier with you to enter the kingdom by that love. You love him because he first loved you and sent his son to die as your substitute sacrifice. Actually, we have to come to a place where we renounce our sacrifices, even renouncing our love for God. I don't mean we renounce it and say, I'll never do that again, but just that's not the means to salvation. See, what the word tells us ultimately is that it is faith in Christ's sacrifice of love for us. Jesus has brought the authority of his teaching of God's word to bear upon the most powerful people in Jerusalem as we wrap up this little portion of Mark's gospel. It's no wonder as we read in the very last phrase of verse 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Man, he just spoke definitively. But he also spoke redemptively. Are you near the kingdom or are you in? Some of you are such good people. You live by high standards. And nobody forces you to. You, you just do it because maybe it's your parents or your upbringing. But, but you know, not even your personal high standards get you into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, unless you keep all of God's law perfectly, you're not going to see the kingdom. But he never intended the law to be the vehicle for getting you there He intended Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. And this ultimately is, to bring it full circle, this ultimately is the gospel remedy to the contempt that just has a a death grip on our culture right now. And beneath that contempt is a heap of self-righteousness. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more committed than you. I'm more patriotic than you, more American than you, more generous than you, more, more, more. Lord, I thank thee that I am not like all these other people. And God says, it's actually contemptuous to me. Oh, that God would send a great awakening to our land and both Republican and Democrat alike would repent of this self-righteousness. Oh, that moms and dads and teenagers and and little children and, and Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Muslims and and Mormons, and all kinds of people who live under a religious title would recognize that neither their sacrifice nor their love will get them into the kingdom, but it's faith in Christ's sacrifice of love alone. And when you begin to know God as he is, you find yourself compelled to say, I want to know you. And happily, you trade all of your treasures all your rewards. Because in the end, what is this life in comparison to God himself? Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father, would you create in us a great hunger to know you in order that we may love you for all that you are, with all that we are? We sing, I trade my treasures all my rewards just to know you, but right now some of us are clinging really tightly. We got stuff that we really love and we're afraid that you would 
take it all away from us and leave us destitute on the street. That's just a reflection. We don't know you. We don't know what a generous, caring, compassionate father you are. Some of us fear losing control. We're not sure we can trust you. We feel safer when we maintain control. Oh God, just loosen the grip. Our little frail, finite grip on life. It's such a delusion. Bring us to that place where we know we are firmly in your hand, held fast by the all-powerful God of the universe who is father and friend. Just help us to know you. Help us to love others. Some of us, because of deep-seated self-righteousness, not only refuse to love other people, but harbor contempt and hatred and bitterness toward others. Oh God, have mercy on us and forgive us, please. And as those who have received a love we never deserved, a love from you that is high and wide and deep and long, a love that is eternal and unconditional, it's characterized by grace and mercy and and truth and justice. Oh Lord God, just out of that experience, help us to love others giving of ourselves, sacrificing of our time, our possessions, whatever it is. And even at this point, I I want to take a moment, Lord, just to praise you for this church. So many here give of themselves generously and extravagantly, week in and week out, and from caring for one another in our physical sickness to comforting those who are overwhelmed, some suffering loss. Thank you, but just deepen it and grow it. We love you and praise you that you are God. All of your glory, all of your power, and that you have come and you've saved. So continue that saving work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.